This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. particularly when we're thinking about the intersection between policing and mental health. We've, we've had a lot of overlapping conversation uh, that's incorporated mental health this week. And I'm excited because Dr. Ray Sean Ray is back with us today to talk about a, fa- a fascinating program called New Jersey Arrive Together. Uh, you know that Dr. Ray, he's been a longtime friend of the show. He's a senior fellow in, doc- in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, renowned for his expertise in understanding and addressing racial equity and social inequality. Uh, and his research focuses on police-civilian relations, men's treatment of women, racial uplift activism, and social policy as mechanisms for combating inequality. Dr. Ray, it's been a minute, bruh. It's good to have you back on these airwaves. Larie, it is great to be on with you. It's, yeah, I always love our conversations. I've missed them. And um, I really look forward to this one because it's really important. Yes, it is. Let's dive right in. This program, uh, New Jersey Arrived Together, give us the contours. How ground shifting is it? Well, well, first define the program for us and then help us understand the the significant impact uh, that the current research about this program may have on policing across the country. Yeah, so the Arrived Together program is a program that's out of the state of New Jersey's Attorney General's office. And essentially what this program does, and this is why it's called arrive together. Is this a program that pairs mental health professionals with police for calls involving people suffering from mental health distress? And one thing that we know from existing research is not only do racial disparities exist, as I've said on your show and people have heard you mention as well, Black people are significantly more likely than other groups to experience use of force and also die at the hands of law enforcement. And that gap between blacks and whites is about 3.5 to one. So in other words, for every Mm. three or four black people, only one white person experiences use of force and is killed by the police for the same types of actions. And it's important to note that black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when we're not attacking and when we don't have a weapon. People hear that, that is an absurd statistic, but it Mm. actually enhances when we include mental health. In other words, mental health makes it worse when people are experiencing a mental health crisis. Part of this is because oftentimes law enforcement is is not trained to recognize a mental health crisis and even a specific mental health condition. Mm -hmm. But of course, mental health specialists are. So the state of New Jersey is taking this program statewide, the first in the country. Of course, there are other amazing programs around the country in Denver, also some places in Middle Tennessee and others that are doing great work. But across the state of New Jersey, that's happening. Now, this is important for New Jersey because the attorney general actually helps to provide oversight over individual police agencies. It's not like that in other states. But part of what I did at Brookings was I did an analysis of the pilot program using data from Arrive Together to figure out what some of these outcomes were and whether or not programs like this actually reduced racial disparities. Wow. This feature where the attorney general has oversight, how significant is that? Is is that also something that we should be thinking about replicating? And, And if not, is this program still able to be effective in places that have a different hierarchy structure when it comes to overseeing policing? Great questions. 
Yes, I think that is something that we should be looking at in terms of replication. And people should think about this. Let's go to Minnesota. Let's think about what happened with George Floyd. Let's think about some of the incidents that happened after that. Part of what happened in the state of Minnesota is that their attorney general came in and had that oversight. We can even look at this federally with Garland and his staff. I mean, they come in federally and go into specific police departments and provide that oversight. Oftentimes, that state and federal level oversight is one of the ways that we see change because we start to see higher level accountability. And that's for a host of reasons. So, yeah, I think that that should definitely be happening, I think, in a big way, because the big thing that happens is not only that oversight, but then the data are housed at the state level. And so for me, I was able to um, to obtain certain types of confidential and anonymous uh, data records and, and, and incidents and police reports that allow me to actually examine what was happening. I was really wanting to know um, what is the lay of the land when it comes to uh, to mental health response calls? Are they actually reducing um, use of force and racial disparities? And then do programs like this actually increase healthcare utilization? I found all of those things to be true. Use of force was very, very low, Laurie. I mean, I'm talking about I mean, super low relatively relative to just use of force more broadly when we're not looking at what happens with mental health, uh, uh, when mental health specialists are present. And then also we saw racial disparities essentially go away. In other words, black people were not Whoa. disproportionately treated worse when mental health professionals were responding. And then finally, people were actually getting the care that they needed. People were getting engaged uh, with health care in terms of being referred to social services and health services, getting the treatment that they need, and were much less likely to be arrested instead of necessarily um, being put in a bad situation. They were put in a situation where they could get better. So this is a, a complete paradigm shift because all of the metrics that we are typically concerned about with police intervention feel like they are in some way being addressed here. The fact that the racial disparity in treatment shrinks, what what accounts for that? Is that simply having mental health professionals in that space? Because we know that racism also permeates the healthcare community. Do we know what accounts for that decrease in, in racial disparity? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I think part of what it means is that the way that the Arrive Together team, the way that they're trained, there are a few things that happen. First, um, when the, when the 911 call comes in, there are some specific questions that have been asked up to this point. Um, is the person acting violent? Do they have a weapon? If the answer to those questions are no, the Arrive Together team has been deployed. So in other words, they're already being set up in situations mm. where, where potentially they're less likely to escalate, even though I found that even in the cases where escalation happened, where someone was being violent, where someone went, where someone had a weapon, the mental health specialists were much more likely to be able to to de-escalate and talk down the person who who had the weapon or who or who had been engaged in in a violent altercation, a fight, or or something like that. The other thing, and this part is unclear, that it seems to be also something going on with the the with the police officers who are part of this particular program. I think this was something that mm. people hoped what happened with student resource officers in schools, that it's something about those officers being in schools that make a difference. And in some schools that's happening, but overwhelmingly that's not the case. So right. so th this is something that we need to find out more of. And I know the state of New Jersey is launching this across the state. And what's going to be interesting is being able to compare across different configurations. So I gave you the main one, 
mental health responder with law enforcement. But there are some specific areas like Patterson, New Jersey, that may not want law enforcement involved at all. There are others that might want to have community involved or they may only want to have mental health specialists or they actually want to train law enforcement to be responding. These are uh, research questions that are ongoing for evaluation. But one thing I do know is that pairing up mental health with law enforcement seems to be a, a very viable option. Huh. I, I like the idea that there's something about the officers. <laughs> and, and you're right. We were there for people who were advocating for school resource officers in in the school space. There was, I think, some belief that, well, the, the nice officers will be the ones that want to be in the school. And we've seen that eh, not so much. Uh, but I, I'm intrigued by this. And I'm, I'm grateful that institutions like yours are going to be able to do some follow up and, and, and some additional deep dive there, because there may be some lessons we can also glean on how to better select who should be an officer <laughs> in the first place. But that, I know that's a conversation for another day. But, you know, Dr. Ray, I'm mindful of the fact that you've come on this show before and we've talked about some of these pilot programs. We've talked about uh, the pilot program in Denver and the benefits that were there. And, and we realize in those conversations and others that it's great to have pilots, but seeing we need to see these programs expanded. What is happening in the New Jersey political ethos that allowed for this sort of expansion of a program, uh, the investment in dollars uh, in a program like this? Give us some sense as to what's happening there, because I know that as people are hearing you talk, they're going to want to replicate stuff like this or programs like this in their home states. Uh, are, is there anything particular to what's happening in New Jersey that contributes to why this has been so widely, uh, so well received and and then spread throughout the state? I think it's the alignment between the governor and the attorney general's office. I mean, the wow. governor has allocated millions of dollars to this particular program. And I mean, it's something that is that is spread across the state. You have that synergy with the attorney general's office in terms of bringing them together to to think about synchronization. The other big thing that they're doing, and again, the, 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 the question is kind of out on how well this is going to work, but it is community-centered in the sense that the state of New Jersey is allowing individual areas, communities, to decide what is best for their community. And I think in that regard, that is centering what is happening in a state like New Jersey that, say, in other states, where people want to provide more oversight, that's not necessarily happening. But the resource allocation is part of what is so, so important in terms of allocating that funding to actually allow for, um, for individuals to make decisions on what's best for their communities. And again, I mean, we can look at the state of New Jersey, as you know, a very diverse state is rural, is suburban, is it's it's uh urban, you know, the demographic shift, the 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 socioeconomic status shifts. The, the size of departments are different. And so allowing communities to have that flexibility is important, but then also providing that oversight to make sure that best practices are being shared. And that is one of the things that's actually happening in the state of New Jersey that I think in other states, there's not as much synergy. And when we talk about money, I mean, we're talking about $10 million that they've allocated to this. And I think that that's going to probably grow into the future, too. Hmm, I like that. And and now New Jersey, as, as happy as I am about this, <clears throat> I'm also going to keep my eye on this because I am aware and New Jersey a few years ago also put $15 million towards expungement processes uh, for people. We had a, a reporter on last week who was talking about this effort, and they have like a 46,000 case backlog. So New Jersey, this is phenomenal. I am going to keep my eye, however, to make sure that we don't have a replication in this space as to what we see happening 
with the failure of the New Jersey State Police uh, to process these expungements in a timely way, if at all. But this is very promising. I I will say to their credit, I am seeing in a variety of places the impact of these sorts of investments. Um, Just sticking with New Jersey for a minute, uh, last night, Dr. Ray, I happened to to be able to attend an event with uh, the Green Light Fund in greater, uh, for Greater Newark. And they literally are investing in the establishment of a black-led and operated emergency medical service, EMS uh, service uh, training program that is designed to target young people who are considered unemployable, provide them with the skills and resources they need to become EMTs. And, and I learned last night, Dr. Ray, that actually black people created EMT. I did not know that EMT started out as a black community service project in the city of Pittsburgh where black people were just basically realizing that they had, I think one of the the statistics they said was in the 1970s, you had a greater chance of surviving a gunshot in Vietnam than a car crash in Pittsburgh, in black Pittsburgh, because the police, there was no medical support. And so black people created the ambulance service. I had no idea that this was a thing and we're seeing this happening now in Newark. So it it definitely does feel, it seems to me as though there is an investment uh, ideology that's sort of driving what's happening in states like New Jersey when it comes to some of these issues. And and that to me, of course, gets back to the vote, right? Because because you cannot have these things. You're not going to get a Governor Murphy investing into these types of programs if he's not elected. And so our vote really, again, does have everything to do uh, with so much of what we're experiencing. It's election day, Dr. Ray. I had to squeeze that in. You know how I roll. Uh, But it's really important that we're clear about the way that politics, civics, and justice have a connecting intercourse. What do you see in terms of the ability to expand this in other states? I know we're talking a little bit about the the particularities in New Jersey that may allow for it, but are there other jurisdictions that you're aware of that are also looking to New Jersey and sort of exploring how this might work in their space as well? Yeah, I mean, some places in Middle Tennessee, Nashville, Murfreesboro, I know in the North Carolina area, Charlotte, um, the Raleigh-Durham area, a lot of them are doing it. There, there are several around the country. And, and I think, as you noted, the state of New Jersey is important to look at here because of the structure. But other states don't have that structure. And even with New Jersey, you brought up something extremely important, and that is bureaucracy. That is mm-hmm. the fact that bureaucrats, and policymakers are completely overwhelmed with paperwork and the way that things are set up. So part of thinking about data efficiency becomes extremely important. Being able to work with uh, organizations that can provide technical assistance to, and not technical assistance in terms of technology, but in terms of strategic planning and oversight and uh, programmatic implementation to help agencies, whether that be local, state, Um, or county level to be able to expand these programs and scale to share information in a timely manner. One of the things that happens with law enforcement, and really I think with government overall, is that oftentimes people are collecting data who who aren't necessarily trained as researchers. Um, Then you have some people entering data who who aren't trained as researchers. That's even more problematic. And then the data just kind of sit there. So we're not learning from it well. Instead, we're just saying, oh, yeah, let's just do this. And one thing that I will say about the state of New Jersey, where some kudos are in line, they, they want to evaluate it. They want to collect promising data, um, promising data in the sense that it's complete, that is analyzable, mm-hmm. that is viable. And then they want to know actually what's going on. And I think there are a lot of places that do not want to do that. And that is problematic. So wherever people are, they should be asking the question about data. 
data helps yeah. us to do a whole lot. You also just brought up something about ambulatory services. I just got to mention this for a second, because, I mean, even if we head out west with the Black Panthers and we think about bone marrow and we think about mm. uh, free breakfast in schools, there are so many amazing things that black people create that gets co-opted and taken from yes. us that we have yes. to really start thinking about the way that we go about our processes in terms of our creation. Oftentimes, creation for black people comes out of plight and marginalization. But in mm. doing so, the people who have gained the skill set to think about patents, to think about creating businesses, to think about ownership, have to be in positions and spaces to really act as kind of community-based venture capitalists to go in and say, wow. hey, look, we have to really start thinking about setting this up to make sure that, yes, it can be created here and replicated elsewhere, but that the people who actually did it actually benefit and get the fruits of their labor instead of it being co-opted by other people. And then nobody really knowing that this is where it actually mm. comes from, which makes the fact that when black people are suffering and when they need uh, EMTs to, and, and hospital staff to respond and they don't, it makes it that much more tragic. Yes. Yeah. And you I, I we we have not. It's crazy that you you took it to this direction, because that's literally what happened in the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, these black people came together, had a phenomenal program. They were ended up training every and everybody because the white folks started getting mad that the black folks were getting better access to health care because black people were providing it for themselves. And when I tell you, the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh at that time uh, contracted with this black EMT service. Uh, they trained a bunch of people and then they canceled the contract and gave the power over to to the white guys. So, you know, what you're saying is so important. It's not just the building and the innovation. It's how do we also protect it and ensure that we surround our innovative concepts and, and projects and programs with an ecosystem that will allow them to thrive independent of the harm that others may have uh, intended towards them. So I, I love that you took it there because I was going to, I was scrambling like how do I get this part in and you just did it right there. That's exactly why uh, we appreciate the work that you do. Uh, so Dr. Ray, Today is election day. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to vote, if you guys have elections where you're at. Any ideas that you think we should be considering when it comes to why elections matter? I, I'm I'm not going to say I'm pulling my hair out because this is what I do. I'm going to have we're going to have this voting conversation. But from you, the, the, the listeners respect what you have to say. What are your thoughts on sort of this debate that has been ginned up about? Uh, I want to not vote because I'm so angry about what I see my government doing. I want to abstain from voting. I'm, I'm going to punish the, the Democrats with not by not voting. So because to let them know how upset I am about what's happening. Do you have any thoughts, any insight that you think we should consider when it comes to grappling with that question? So, look, I, I get the angst. I get the I want to show people by not participating. But I just want to put this in perspective anywhere else in our lives. Tell me where we can be in a place where we don't participate and people pay attention to what we got to say and what we're Oops. doing. There is no other part of life. You go to, If you don't go to work, you don't get paid. You're going to probably get fired. They don't want you there. If, if you play sports, all these dudes that be hooping and stuff, oh, yeah, I'm going to show them how much I care about basketball by not getting on the court, by not dribbling the ball, by not shooting. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. Instead, and, and again, I get it, but the more upset, the more frustrated we are, the more politically engaged we have to be. See, the fact mm -hmm. that it is this moment that people want us to opt out is exactly the way the system is set up. You know, what happens oftentimes with, with elections like this, um, and, and there are elections in the D.C. area, by the way, like a lot of local things are happening. Part of what happens is these are the moments when 
there's the lowest amount of voter turnout, which means that the people who are most politically um, engaged are the ones who are actually going to get their way. These are actually the moments where all the angst and frustration can actually be channeled to get people in office that people think can actually make a change or wow. where we can actually get involved ourselves and make a change. And, and this is why it's so important, Laurie, because we can look at states across the country, and we've talked about this when I came on your show, some of the analyses that I've done looking at states like Georgia or North Carolina or even the upper Midwest, where we've seen how the black vote has literally shifted the outcome mm. in these local elections even more so because we're talking locally and we already know from alabama to mississippi to north carolina to texas the way that they balkanize our votes even though i think the supreme court um has gotten that right not not some other things but have gotten that right and so in that regard we have to be more politically engaged and i get the opt-out but when we opt out, that does not lead to people paying us attention. And that's what we have to do. You know, even if if you really want to make a difference, if you're like, look, I don't like any of the candidates, get together with people, figure out what third party or independent person whose name you're going to put down. That sends messages because now you're on paper. When we don't vote, we're not on paper. And that does not help us as a community. Mm. I'm reminded of the New York Working Families Party, which is a third party. And, and I, I'm, I'm all for third parties at the local level. I don't think we risk it at the presidential level. I think that's that's ridiculous considering the, the makeup of things right now. But at the local level, I when in New York State, I, which is where I still vote, I go down the Working Family Party's line because that is a third party that works in collaboration, not collaboration, but they're in alignment uh, with the broader political process there. And so many of the candidates who are Democrats also run on the Working Family party line and it's the working families party line as a third party that will often say the things that the democrats don't want to say or the the other establishment parties don't want to say and that allows for uh that voice and that is a, a party that is currently led by maurice mitchell a brilliant brother who is doing some amazing work they've got it's a black-led space in many ways that diverse space in many ways and that is where i like to see people really think about uh third party options and, and i think people should do that and at the local level if you're interested in that there are black folks doing this work right now, for those of you who are interested, um, if you're serious, if you're serious. Uh, but Dr. Ray, I think, as you point out, not being engaged is absolutely the least powerful way of getting your voice heard, of getting your your perspective uh, seen. And so I'm, I'm grateful that you put that out there, because if, if you're trying to play in the game, but you you ain't even come to the game, don't nobody care about mm. your theor theoretical free throw rate? Like, don't nobody care? <laughs> Nobody nah, cares. Put, put, putting on new shoes and, and <laughs> knee pads and sweatbands and all that to be like, oh, I'm just going to stand on the side and jog. I'm going to act right. like I'm playing. Come on, y'all. We got to get in the game. Get in the game and get on the court and then go ball out. That's it. That's it. Dr. Ray, how can people follow you? What, what's the best place for them to, to connect with you beyond these airwaves? So I'm on social media at Sociologist Ray. People can just put that in. They can find me on Twitter X, on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok. Um, also have a new role with the American Institutes for Research um, where I direct the equity initiative, really aiming to make a difference in local communities to address systemic inequalities by race and place. It's an over $100 million investment to do so across the country. And we're about to double that amount of money over the next couple of years. So look, really aiming to take the research and evaluation and make a difference locally. And that's where I'm at currently in my life. 
We appreciate you, brother. Keep doing that work. Love to you and your family, your beautiful wife and babies. Uh, Y'all be blessed. We really appreciate having you in those spaces.